In this edition of AML Conversations, AML RightSource Vice Chairman John Byrne sat down with John Roth. John Roth has a distinguished career in the public sector, serving in various roles within the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. Today, he works for a digital currency exchange, Bitrex, as the Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer. John talked to John Roth about his diverse experience in money laundering and terrorist financing, which includes being the lead of the 9-11 Commission Report on Terrorist Financing, being the Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security, and serving as the Department of Justice's liaison to the Financial Action Task Force. The discussion ends with where Bitrex fits in with financial technology and John's views on artificial intelligence, as well as many other things. John, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me. I um, have been meaning to do this for quite a while for a number of reasons. One, given your background at the Justice Department uh, before, a little bit before 9-11, obviously only a few months before, but also the things that occurred post 9-11 in terms of regulation and issues um, and where we are today uh, is changed, but it hasn't changed. I think is part of what I want to talk to you about, and whether you agree with that. And also, now that you're with uh, a financial technology company that's really interesting and really sort of the next wave of um, both compliance, um, AML oversight, but also the, the way in which people are getting financial products. Your thoughts, given your background, um, what we need to be concerned about, and since you're there, you could give us a better view than most on what a, what a good job that community is doing. Because I actually believe that the, the folks that are dealing in virtual currency and uh, some of the other spaces, the fintech spaces, have actually shown a real willingness uh, not only to, to get folks like yourself on staff there, but um, they, they've come to conferences, they've tried to explain to us old compliance people how things work. So I want to go from there to there. So let, let me start this um, when you joined the Justice Department, uh, you joined in 2001. At that time, what was your what were your responsibilities supposed to be? Sure. So um, actually, I joined the the field offices of DOJ in '87. So by the time 2001 rolled around, I was in headquarters. Um, had done uh, about seven years as an assistant U.S. attorney in Michigan, doing a variety of cases, including financial crimes cases then moved down to Miami, where I was the chief of the narcotics section in the Southern District of Florida. So by the time I started my headquarters tour, I started at the narcotic and dangerous drugs section as the chief, but then in September, or I'm sorry, in July of 2001, uh, Mike Chertoff, who had been newly appointed as the assistant attorney general in the criminal division, uh, asked me to move from the narcotics section to the asset forfeiture and money laundering section because Jerry McDowell, who had been the chief there, was retiring. And uh, his sort of goal was to get us smart on cyber and on money laundering, particularly sort of uh, Russian money laundering. He thought that was going to be the next big thing. Um, As we all know, uh, a month and a half later, um, everyone's priorities changed. You know, it's interesting, a couple things that we'll talk about later. Russian money laundering, which we, um, I can at least say on my end, I believe is happening right now as we speak in 2018. But I want to ask you, now that you mentioned the narcotics and dangerous drugs, you were in Miami. What years were you in Miami doing that? Sure. So I was there from 94 to 99. 
So it wasn't the 80, the cowboy 80s, but it was still pretty crazy. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. It was um, um, still the Wild West. Um, it was a lot more sophisticated, I think, than what you saw sort of on television and Scarface and those kinds of things. It was more of a business. Uh, some of the folks that we prosecuted were as uh, well-educated, as articulate, as thoughtful as any international businessman uh, you could ever meet. So that's what we were up against back then, and it was uh, quite the challenge. You know, um, did, did you get the sense, that I got the sense working at the, with the bankers at the time, that in the mid to late 90s, even though we were creating, the SAR was created in, in 96, 97, um, obviously there was uh, a number of legislative proposals. I think most of the legislation had been finalized by 94, but we started to get the sense, because it was during the Know Your Customer debate, in 98 and 99, that society in general and policymakers specifically seem to have lost some interest in what we now know as AML, which I don't even think it was called that in 98 and 99. Obviously, we know the Know Your Customer regs got pulled, but as a uh, with a prosecutorial skill set that you had doing those uh, doing those cases, even before you moved to Washington, did you folks get the sense? that the support for what you were doing was changing or not really? The support within the financial community? No, I think... The I think political the, support. I, yeah, political support. Because I think the bankers, at least the compliance officers, to me, still believed in what they were doing. Their bosses might not have, and right. so, certainly the business side might not have. But policymakers, because it seemed overnight the attacks on Know Your Customers kind of came, to me, came out of left field. Did you guys get that sense? Yeah, I mean... Not so much in the field when I was in Miami. Certainly when I was on the 9-11 Commission, we looked at that. And one of the things that we found was there was just basically a regulatory fatigue that happened in sort of 98, 99. Really, the entire run-up to 9-11 was um, a lot of good ideas out there, a lot of um, politically and policy-wise, a lot of uh, recognition that some changes had to be made, but there was really no political will. Yeah, it's um, and I remember at the time too, everybody was focused on Y2K. Yes. So everybody was yes. spending their time and, and energy on that. Probably why, in part, why Chertoff mentioned cyber as a, as an issue, which again is still not only still an issue, but it's probably more of a problem too. It is more of a problem today. Right? Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So um, you alluded to it a couple months before 9/11. Then 9/11 occurs. It's sort of old ground for a lot of us, but there are some young younger AML folks that do listen to this that were obviously kids when that occurred. I want to talk about sort of post 9-11, but just just for the audience that day alone, what was what's what what occurred for you that day? So your personal thoughts about that and then we'll talk about the commission and the work you did there. Sure. So I was uh, I was the head of the asset forfeiture and money laundering section, which has now been renamed, but um, sitting a block and a half from the White House. And uh, I was with my good friend and yours, Les Joseph, uh, who was my deputy chief at the time, and uh, in a conference room, and somebody came in and said, well, an airplane crashed into, into the World Trade Center. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, what a horrible accident. And then, of course, a few minutes later, um, we heard that there was a second airplane uh, that crashed. Of course, they evacuated the city. My, my oldest child at the time was in daycare right, right. across the street, so uh, I had to grab him and put him in a car. And I remember you know, moving down 14th Street at a snail's pace, trying to get out of the city, and next to me was uh, my chief of litigation for uh, when I was in the narcotics section. 
And uh, he rolled down his window and I rolled down mine because we weren't going anywhere. He says, you know, everything is going to be different from now on. And uh, uh, that was absolutely true. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, the the work that you did on the 9-11 Commission, I want to mention in a moment, but prior to being named to that, and uh, what what uh, what were your... Um, Projects and you know post 9/11. I remember I sat down with Dennis Larmel and he said they had all these meetings up in New York and the banks together were sharing information. What were you doing in your role at Justice before going to, obviously to, to the commission day to day to deal with the after effects of 9/11? Right, and you know at the time, remember Justice did not have a dedicated national security division. They had sort of the organized, or the terrorism and violent crime section, which sort of told you what the priority was. It was, you know, considered, quite frankly, to be a little bit of a backwater. I mean, there were some very talented people there, but it just wasn't a high priority in the sort of a policy-making sphere. And, um, you know, it was all hands on deck. And, in fact, that's when I first met Dennis Lormel, was when he stood up the FBI's, uh, at the time it was called FRG, the Financial right. Review Group, to take a look at the financial activities of the 19 hijackers and to determine sort of exactly what the scope of that was. So we helped staff that and staff sort of what was really the early stages of TFOS, the Terrorist Financial Operations Section, um, to you know understand were there further threats, what was going on. Uh, there was a lot of uh, issues with regard to legislation, the, the uh, Patriot Act, Patriot, yeah. uh, Title III, mm-hmm. was being resurrected, you know, largely Senator Levin's, a lot of Senator Levin's and a few others. Uh, um, legislation got unearthed. The department had to take positions on that, assist in the drafting of it. So we were very, very involved in that uh, as well. Interesting. I, you know, I remember uh, as you know, being with the bankers at the time, we were called to come up to the Hill in um, early October and basically were told this is going to move with or without you, which of course we expected. And they said, so what do you want? And I, I tell this story quite frequently uh, over the years. I said, I want two things, if possible. One is cover everybody. Right. Seems to me, if you have a financial footprint, you should have some obligation to identify and report suspicious activity and do things by regulation so you have a chance to comment. Those are the two things. Now, the Patriot Act did contain a lot of coverage, but as we know, we're in 2018, and many parts of the real estate industry still don't have an obligation. So that's a frustrating thing to see over time. Um, but everybody agreed in the in the traditional banking sector. You not only agreed, they were proactive, obviously. And so the Patriot Act, as we know, passed in three weeks. Um, it had a number of provisions dealing with the criminal side, uh, but also some specifics for the financial side, uh, customer identification, the, th- the 314A and B, which we were very involved in, didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted it, but <laughs> it, it, it was certainly uh, our intent. Information sharing made a lot of sense. So yeah, I do remember running into you guys uh, through that. Um, so that passed, and obviously we're still dealing with the regulations and the supervision and all that over time. Um, when was the 9-11 Commission formed? And then just generally, what was its... I'm sure its broad mission was to find out what happened and what we could learn from that and all that sort of thing. 
but what was your role with the commission? So why was it formed and what was your role? Sure. So, I mean, it was formed as a result of really uh, a sustained political effort, grassroots political effort on the families of the victims of 9-11, um, what was sort of termed as the 9-11 families, the 9-11 widows, who really wanted to understand whether or not there were failings on the part of the U.S. government in um, detecting and stopping bin Laden from doing what right. he did. So um, I actually got a call. I was, I think, in Miami at the time at a conference, and I got a call from Michael Zeldin, uh, who had said, hey, I know some people who are looking for somebody who is very, you know, very sort of involved in anti-money laundering. Is this something that you'd be interested in? And he put me in touch with the 9-11 Commission, and from there we, we worked. And basically we were divided into teams. So mm-hmm. I ran the team uh, with regard to terrorist financing. Right. And there's really only three of us. Uh, there's like a 70 staff, 70 person staff, but only three of us were dealing with um, terrorist financing, money laundering issues. And our goal really was to understand what happened. Uh, you know, what was the environment pre 9/11? Uh, what happened since 9/11? And try to get some recommendations for the future. What, what, what years were these? So this would have been uh, 2002. Okay. Um, is when we stood up and it took about 18 months right. to get out the report. And we did a monograph, a terrorist financing monograph, that um, uh, still, you know, I read it uh, a couple of months ago. It still holds up pretty well. Sure. Um, uh, nothing embarrassing in there, so that's always good. And then, of course, the 9-11 Commission report, which uh, I would rec- I think that's certain chapters that are recommended reading even today. So what I'm going to do when this is over is give folks uh, where they can get the monograph because you were kind enough to... Uh, to speak at a, at a class that you and I were involved in that you were running with Les Joseph at George Mason um, last September 11th. And I think it's always interesting for AML professionals to sort of understand what the environment was pre, what we learned from the the use of funds for terrorism, uh, which is, was still ongoing. You know, I mean, Dennis, every time there's a terrorist attack, writes something else for the ACAMS website, you know, right. uh, to come up with anything that could give us some red flags or, or factors to look at. Um, so I'll, I'll make that available. But just I mean, briefly, give, give me uh, your your sort of summary of the financial side. I mean, people can come to their own conclusions on whether the government did enough. I think there's historically always been a battle between agencies uh, in law enforcement, in the regulatory world. People don't always work together. And I think... We all agree with that. How much they did or didn't, I'll leave for historians. I still think that, my own view is, I still think that's a problem. I still think there are people that sort of get in their own lanes and, and don't see that, hey, you've got two or three agencies that have some of the similar skill sets. Why don't we work together? Uh, I'll let others figure out how... Good that, luck with that. Yeah, that might have impacted <laughs> that. So, I mean, I obviously can tell my views. But from the financial sector standpoint... Sure. What did you glean? I know you did a ton of interviews with bankers and regulators and law enforcement. Um, the view has always been, it still seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, terrorist finance is super hard to figure out because the dollar amounts are not that high. You can look at some indicators uh, to, that would get you to look at more information, but not any one indicator tells you specifically, oh, yeah, this is terrorist financing. Is that what you found out? Has it improved in 2018 over time? Are we getting better? Yeah, um, all good questions. I mean, 
when I look at sort of the financial side of this, the terrorist financing side, both in the industry as well as in the government, it was really a microcosm of the entire sort of counterterrorism problem, which was, one, there wasn't really ever a, a realization of the scope of the problem. In other words, you know, we had a chapter called A Failure of the Imagination. And that's truly what it was. Uh, no one, whether it was in financial services, in government, in even sort of the intelligence services, sort of understood um, what was about to happen and the, both the, the will and the capacity of the individuals that were involved to do this. So the financial services uh, industry was absolutely in the same place as everyone else. So they were doing what they needed to do, uh, what the regulations required them to do. Um, you know, I was on the government side, so it was always not enough. But sure. That was just sort of my worldview on that. But, um, you know, it was what it was. And then, you know, I think everyone's sort of eyes got opened as a result of it. Um, what we found was that there was a failure of cooperation between sort of the law enforcement and the intelligence uh, uh, agencies. There was a failure of imagination on the intelligence agency side to understand sort of the existential threat that al-Qaeda uh, um, um, sort of posed. There was significant downfalls with regard to the FBI sharing information in the interagency community uh, with policymakers even at the White House. Um, and, of course, sharing information afterward. Uh, I, I think 9-11 gave everyone a wake-up call, at least for a while. Right. Um, but that's one of the things that we struggled with with regard to interagency uh, cooperation. How is it that you somehow solidify that and make permanent this idea of cooperation? And it really is personality-driven right. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, if the leadership in each agency wants it to happen, it will. If they're territorial and turfy, it won't. And frankly, I've never cracked the code in 32 years in government. I never cracked the code on how it is that we get government to cooperate better. But you're right, ourselves. though. It's personality. I mean, yep. There's no question. Yep. It's like anything else, even in a corporation. The corporate culture is going to be not what's written on the page, what the CEO sort of does, right? Yeah. Is he or she a model? So I think that's I think that's more than fair. It's sort of a left-field question, but is one of the outcomes of sort of the 9-11 review, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. Was that was that sort of done in reaction to that? You tell me. No, I okay. no, actually not. Okay. So it was, that was happening, uh, that was in progress was even it? before okay. uh, our report came out. Okay, okay. Um, our contribution, for good or ill, was the office of ODNI, uh, uh, sort of the Department, of, or the uh, Director of National Intelligence. Mm-hmm. But uh, Homeland Security was uh, already on. It was already yeah. People have asked that, and I said I just really couldn't remember. Yeah, no. Our report yeah. talks about the fact that yeah. it had already been created, okay. so okay. we didn't have a recommendation. So um, obviously, we're dealing. So my other question was today, to the extent you're still and you you are engaged in the AML community, uh, have we learned enough to be more? Af- more than just a little bit more effective? That's a uh, question regarding terrorist financing in yeah. 2018. I mean, we are, this is like night and day uh, between what we saw pre 9 11 and uh, post 9 11 and even now. Uh, people take this seriously. There's actually now sort of a, a career in anti money laundering that there probably wasn't in, uh, in 2000 and 2001. Um, there's a whole sort of regulatory infrastructure that pays attention to it. There's consequences uh, for non-compliance. Um, the financial institutions that I've dealt with take it very seriously. We take it very seriously. I think it's just a different place now than it was um, 
pre-9-11. Yeah, and I, I do think that there's a recognition now that what AML professionals do saves lives. You know, and I think you, you constantly hear cost center when you talk about compliance. I think in this space, they'll still say it's costly, but I, I do think there's a recognition by some, maybe maybe not enough. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, non-compliance is even more costly yeah. uh, uh, if you get caught. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that really impressed me when I was on the 9-11 Commission is talking to the banking industry and talking about sort of their rapid reaction to law enforcement inquiries um, in sort of terrorist financing things where, you know, somebody like Dennis Lormel when he worked at the FBI and then his successors had the ability to say, hey, we have an issue here and we need to find out this information. Right. It would not be lost in the bowels of a bank bureaucracy, but it would actually be taken care of and paid attention to and there would be a sort of a rapid response. Right. That, I think, was uh, a, re- a revelation to us that you know there was truly a, a law enforcement intelligence slash banking partnership. Yeah, and, and the private-public partnership is just... That's a watchword now that was sort of talked about only in very narrow uh, groups, meaning the corporate security people might talk about that with law enforcement. But now that's that's seen as something to embrace, and I think that's been a byproduct of 9-11. Dennis uh, obviously deserves a heck of a lot of credit for that. Um, Let's move on. Um, You spent a couple of years with the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, for those of you that... um, or keeping track of the acronyms. Um, we've talked a lot about FATF before. I actually did an interview, uh, a podcast with Rick McDonald about a year or so ago, and Rick was the executive secretary at the time when, sure. you, when you were there. Tell us about your role there and uh, maybe some of the, the high points uh, that came out during your time uh, working with the FATF delegate, U.S. FATF delegation. Right. So I was the law enforcement liaison to the U.S. delegation, and uh, it happened because my wife was uh, uh, at the Department of Justice, and she was the attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. So I had the difficult duty of having to live in Paris <laughs> there you go. and uh, work at the uh, Financial Action Task Force while she worked for the Department of Justice. Um, uh, I worked a lot with Treasury. Obviously, it's largely a finance minister role in FATF, mm-hmm. and I will have to give kudos to people like uh, 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 Chip Ponce and sure. Sarangi, uh, who were my counterparts there, who are uh, as dedicated of professionals as I've ever seen, very thoughtful. Um, when you think about the best that this country offers in the international setting, mm-hmm. you can think of those people who are just extraordinarily talented and very well respected in the international community. We sat down with Chip and talked to him. So, yeah, I, uh, folks get a chance to, to re-listen to that. That would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, a lot of what we were doing is rewriting the recommendations, but a lot of what I was doing is uh, typologies, hmm. uh, law enforcement typologies, given my background. Uh, as well as, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of the mutual assessments of countries. Um, To the extent that I I should plug FATF, uh, those mutual assessments are uh, terrific resources for any AML professional who's looking at geographic risk. Um, That should be your first stopping point uh, for any kind of assessment of country risk uh, because they are very, very thorough, very thoughtful, a lot of work goes into those. And they're different now, right? Because now they look at effectiveness, which they didn't necessarily look at before. So they're even more impactful today than, say, 10, 15 years ago. Right. And unlike some multilateral bodies, I mean, the FATF truly tells the truth. I mean, they truly 
um, uh, paint an accurate picture as opposed to, say, you know, the United Nations and certain reports maybe have a political bent. There isn't really a whiff of politics in any of these reports. It's a very sort of uh, useful kind of thing to have. So again, so so the country value, the country reports, obviously uh, they do topologies. Um, what was your sense? So FATF is comprised both of law enforcement and regulatory and policy people. There seems to be, from an outsider's point of view, a, uh, a clear respect for the law enforcement side. I don't say you don't see here in the States necessarily, that's not fair, but I do think FATF seems to make sure that whatever is drafted or considered or recommended includes a, sort of a law enforcement perspective. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, and that's sort of reflected in the FATF recommendations. Right, There's right. you know, a significant number of recommendations with regard to law enforcement cooperation, how you do law enforcement, those kinds of things. Sure. So it's uh, and impossible to do it just on a regulatory side. You have to have the enforcement side. Right, and I've always said the, the reason we have the Bank Secrecy Act is not to do programs and policies is to get information in the hands of law enforcement. Right. That's so, why we have like, it. Like chase bad guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when you look at the U.S. mutual evaluation, for example, that was one of the big sort of shining stars of that mutual evaluation is how vigorously we are on the enforcement side. Right, right, right. Uh, and in also, contrast to a number of countries. What was also interesting, too, is the 2006... Yes. Valuation called us out for not having beneficial ownership mm-hmm. uh, requirements, and obviously, while it took ten years, <laughs> we did eventually get them. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting, that those that are sort of complaining about the new CDD rule, need to understand that part of the reason why it exists, the policy reasons why it exists, because I believe you need to know beneficial owners. We could disagree on how you get there, but we need to do it. But also the other reason is the international community looked at our laws and regs and said, yeah, it's pretty solid, pretty good, but here's a gap. Huge gap. Yeah. Um, um, you know, the, the, the state of Delaware was had uh, fewer sort of transparency rules than some countries that um, you would think would be uh, right. um, uh, less transparent. No, uh, yeah, there's, there's no question. Um, you, so I want to talk about where you are today, but before that, you did spend... A number of years as the Inspector General, I know not in our space, but uh, I'm curious about that sort of role. To me, it seems like uh, that you're looking to work with, in my words, I hear whistleblowers and outside reviews. Just you're you're sort of um, uh, what's what's the uh, uh, the group uh, internal affairs in in law enforcement? Is that a fair description of? of what the role is of an inspector general? Well, there is sort of the internal affairs part of it, but the other part of it is sort of uh, what I would call red teaming. Uh, And there's, you know, an analog, I think, in industry, which is, you know, anytime you have an internal audit uh, function, um, that's some of what we do. So, you know, we are the contrarians. The, the, our rules call us uh, to exercise professional skepticism mm-hmm. about the programs and policies in the department we oversee. So that was our job, I like to say, was sure. to be the professional skeptic. Um, how do we know this program is working? How do we, you know, what, what sort of internal controls are in place to ensure that you uh, understand that things are working the way they, they should? In addition to sort of that internal affairs, you know, sort of misconduct and those kinds of things. So uh, it's really an only in America kind of a, a thing where you have somebody who works for the Department of Homeland Security, as I did, appointed by President Obama, right. uh, 
whose job it was to point out faults in my own organization. Right. Uh, it, that's a classically American thing. I don't think it exists anywhere else. Uh, it was fascinating, and I learned a lot about large organizations. I learned a lot about government as a result. You know, I, I asked you earlier whether DHS was um, a result of 9-11 and a commission, and, I, and obviously it's not. Um, there was a lot of skepticism when DHS was created. So you put all these different agencies together. It's a unbelievably large organization. What's your take after doing that for a number of years? Just in terms of not are they doing correct policy or regulatory things, but is it too unwieldy or were they able to manage? Because obviously there's different heads of different sections and all of that. It just seems to be... You know, you look at it from afar, you just think, how can anybody be successful when you have such a large, I don't even know how many how many staff they have, organization. So what was your takeaway from in your role, just in terms of that, in terms of getting things done? It was, uh, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it still is a very immature organization. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons that it's immature is when they set it up, they did not put in the kind of level oversight that it needed. So you'll have a law enforcement agency that's basically an entity unto itself. It's really within the umbrella of DHS, but the secretary has very little visibility right. into what's going on in any specific one of the components. So um, my experience has been that the secretary and the deputy, who have very small staffs, were constantly surprised by the kinds of things that we were finding. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't, you know, there is a way to do it, but the way the legislation was set up didn't have it. You know, you look at DOD where you have like the Office of Secretary of Defense, and it's uh, a mechanism by which you can exercise internal control and oversight of each of the individual components. Right. Whether they do it well or not is a different question. But DHS doesn't even have that. Right. I mean, the secretary has a tiny staff, the deputy has a tiny staff. Um, so, you know, these components really just sort of are entities unto themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. For a number of years, 2010 to about a year or two ago, um, the AML community worked very closely, and they still do to some degree, with ICE because of their anti-human trafficking uh, right. work. I know they're still engaged in that, obviously, but what you read about now in terms of the other obligations. I will, I will just say this and I ask you to comment, but I've talked to some ex-ICE employees who are now somewhere else. They're happy to, to be away. Let's just put it that way. So again, I, I just, I find it interesting because they were so, I give them more credit than I do the FBI and even IRS to be on the front lines of the anti-human trafficking space. I mean, they were really good. Uh, we, meaning the AML community, sat down with their analysts, bankers did, and came up in 2010, 2011, with a series of typologies on, on human trafficking that ACAMS was able to um, publicize to the broader community. We couldn't have done it without the, the support of that of that organization. So it's uh, it's 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 a little concerning. We'll yeah. see what happens. Things things evolve. Things change. So. Yeah, morale is a huge issue there. It's yeah. just an enormous issue, and, and that of course affects the kind of talent that you can bring in. So sure. it's unfortunately one of those vicious cycles. Um, as morale goes down, the ability to track talent goes down, and that feeds on itself. Yeah, I would think that's right. So let's talk about today. You're um, Chief Compliance Officer at Bittrex. Um, interesting uh, career move, not because it's not relevant to your your career as an investigator, a compliance person, um, financial crime, because it's all relevant. 
Tell us a little little bit about the company and your role there. Sure. So uh, Bittrex is a digital currency exchange whose headquarters is in Seattle. It was basically created by three Microsoft and Amazon computer engineers, computer security engineers, mm-hmm. who um, looked at the blockchain technology and understood its potential uh, in the future for inherently secure um, communications and transfers of value, um, as opposed to what we have in the internet now, which is something that is inherently insecure that you try to make secure by bolting things on. Sure. So the virtue of blockchain technology is it's inherently secure. The uh, way that blockchain, however, uh, gets um, funded, I guess is the the right word, is through digital technologies Mm -hmm. or digital uh, assets, digital coins, those kinds of things, tokens, those kinds of things. Uh, Those don't have a value unless they can be exchanged for money, and that is the service that Bittrex provides. Really, they started the whole thing because they were so interested in it, they thought an exchange would be the best way to get all the different kinds of blockchain technologies funneled into a single sort of place so they Mm -hmm. could learn about them and and, uh, figure out sort of where the future was going to lie with these things. So uh, we are an MSB under FinCEN rules, uh, and so they needed a chief compliance officer, and um, uh, I got recommended by a friend of mine, and I was... uh, uh, after 32 years in the federal government and uh, a change of administrations, I thought it was probably wise to, to sort of try something new. Mm-hmm. I love the money and the money laundering space. Sure. I think the intellectual challenges and the policy challenges there are second to none. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided to give it a shot. So what's your sort of day-to-day responsibilities, just high level? Well, I mean, uh, it's running a compliance staff and uh, everything that an MSB needs to do, right? So ensure that we have good customer identification, that we have good transaction monitoring, that we're doing suspicious activity reporting, that our liaison with law enforcement is good, all the kinds of things sure. that, you know, a Western Union or a MoneyGram or anybody else needs to do. It's just in a different kind of an uh, uh, environment. But, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, knowing your customer is still very important. Right. Understanding your transactions within your network is still very important. And uh, ensuring that you're feeding law enforcement with the kinds of suspicious activity reporting that they need to do their job is very important. But it's not really that different. Right. No, I wouldn't, th- I wouldn't think so. Um, they've obviously uh, asked you to participate in outside programs and conferences. That's that's good. We get your your career expertise plus your new newfound expertise in this space. Exactly. I'm, I'm able now to explain what blockchain is in about uh, five PowerPoint slides uh, <laughs> in, in a way that uh, even a dumb lawyer like me right. uh, can sort of understand it. Because once you actually conceptualize it, you don't need to know a lot about cryptography. You don't need to know a lot about computer science. There are people who do, sure. but we don't have to know that. Right. Just like we don't have to know how the internet works or your right. email works to be able to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same way here, and the kinds of internal controls that a typical MSB have work actually pretty well. There are some areas in which we're having challenges, but there are some opportunities as well. For example, in the blockchain space, you can you can trace a blockchain transaction on a public blockchain explorer uh, from the moment the coin was created or the value was created all the way to the present time. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do that sitting on a computer in my living room in my pajamas. When I was a money laundering prosecutor, that would have taken dozens of subpoenas and probably two years by the time you got through all the financial institutions to be able to do that. Wow. I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, 
just uh, project out five, ten years from now, where do you see the AML uh, environment? What do you think it's going to be? We're just going to continue to evolve with uh, uh, dealing with new products, new activities. Uh, what do you what do you see coming down the pike? I, I just think that the the greater sophistication in things like AI and um, uh, just the sort of awareness of large data sets and how to use large data sets is going to continue to evolve in a way that is going to, assuming that it's funded correctly and, and given the kinds of resources that it needs, I think it's going to really fundamentally change how it is that we think about AML. That being said, there's still going to be sort of boots on the ground sort of uh, requirements of sophisticated Gumption. financial yeah, uh, investigation right. to right. be able to figure out what's going on in specific places. But, you know, I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, I think in five years we'll have this conversation about the same kinds of things that we do now, which is who's your customer, what are their transactions, are they, you know, how, do you, how can you tell if they're suspicious or unusual, uh, what's your relationship with law enforcement like? What's your relationship with your regulators like? I, 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 yeah, I, you know, it, it fundamentally hasn't changed from, say, 2003 to now. Uh, it's been more sophisticated. There's been more awareness of it. But I assume that it's going to be more of the same. Well, John Roth, thank you for sitting down with me. I think the my takeaways are many, but one is it is interesting that in 2001, uh, your boss at the time said, focus on Russian money laundering. And in 2018, we still are doing that, besides all the other things that you were kind enough to talk about. But I appreciate the time today. Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. It certainly is enjoyable whenever you have the opportunity to sit down with truly committed public servants. Uh, we don't recognize those individuals enough today. And John Roth is truly that. And I think uh, you got a sense of that from both his passion and his responses and all the different things that he was involved in throughout his career and continues to be, but now in the, in the private sector. Um, so a couple things going forward. One is, in terms of a, a historical document that I think is worth uh, rereading, that's the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks Upon the U.S. This is the monograph on terrorist financing from 2004, which John was involved in as the, as the lead with uh, several of his um, colleagues and drafting the report that goes into what occurred financially that enabled those horrific acts on 9-11. So take a look at that. Simply go to Google and put in National Commission on Terrorist Attacks Upon the United States. As I mentioned, John is now with Bittrex. Uh, you can get more information about that company at bittrex.com. So a couple things. We uh, sat down for this interview right before the 4th of July, and every time we arrive at that point of the year, it gets me to thinking about the importance of freedom and what it takes for us to be free. And I would just offer this, that those of you in the AML profession do so much to enable freedom, whether it's dealing with human trafficking or money laundering or terrorism, all the work that you do, whether you're in a financial institution, an advisory capacity, or uh, certainly in the government, you do so much to protect society, both in the United States and globally, I might add. And I think that's pretty important that we recognize that AML is a global issue, and we need the cooperation and, and coordination with our colleagues across the globe. And I know that 
we in the AML community truly believe this. So I just want you to uh, think about this as we the mid midpoint of 2018. Obviously, there are some AML reform bills that are pending in the United States in the U.S. Congress. There's obviously uh, a brand new regulation, the CDD rule, which we're grappling with and figuring out implementation issues. But there's also some criticism of uh, the current regime, if you will. Some of it's valid, a lot of it's not. I think it's important for us as AML professionals to be part of that debate, but to make sure uh, that it's a reasoned and factual debate. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations, an AML Rights Source, saying not only will we see you next time, but we're going to continue the effort to deal with these challenges and once more, thank you for all you do. A lot going on in 2018, and AML Right Source is right there in the thick of things. You should understand that we are hiring, so go to our website for more information. Also, we have blogs, white papers, and other information that is essential to keep AML professionals up to date on current news. In future episodes of AML Conversations, we plan to talk to government and private sector experts in the AML, financial crimes, and terrorist financing space. We are interested in hearing from you, so please send any of your thoughts, comments, or individuals you would like to hear us talk to to info at amlrightsource.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.